The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, Heritage. Two people. Let's try that again. Morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing today? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles if you would. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Doorkeepers, when they realize what we're teaching on today, lock the doors before they get out. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. We will make sure that you get one so you can track along with us. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. And we pray that the Lord would just use that to teach you more and more about his goodness, his grace, his will for your life. A um, couple of announcements for you. Um, the, the guys just, like, I, we do it to God's glory, so don't misunderstand. But, like, the guys just killed it, right? I mean, they, they really did. That was like... If John Mayer and Dave Matthews got saved, that's what it would be like right there, right? <clears throat> so good. Um, but listen, this Wednesday night, our normal Wednesday night Bible study and Awana's program is taking a one-week hiatus, and they're going to be leading us in some acoustic worship over at the Hub. There's going to be dessert, some time of fellowship. Really want to encourage you guys to come join us this Wednesday night at 6.30 to just sing praises to the Lord. Just take a break. It's, that can be such a good thing. Like right now, you can get recharged and filled and worship. I'm going to take on the week, and then the world has a way of just kind of beating you up a little bit, right? So come in Wednesday night. Join us Wednesday night, 6.30, some fellowship, some junk food. There's no calories at church, but some worship to get our souls restored and realigned. Amen. Another announcement, Milestone 6, preparing to launch, is this Saturday, October 29th. So um, parents, if you are in this room and you have a high school student who is a junior or senior in high school, will you raise your hand and hold it up nice and high? If you have a junior or senior in high school, raise your hand nice and high. There's like, there's a couple. Man, the 8.30 service had all the high school kids. That's stunning to me that you got your high school kids out for an 8.30 service. So if that's you, listen, we have, Milestone 6 is one of my favorite ones that we do with our, our Milestone program, where Pastor Jeremy on October 29th, that's this coming Saturday, is going to be meeting with parents and kids in that age to talk about the transitions in life coming up. And it covers so many good things from practical stuff like, hey, do you, do you know what to do if your car breaks down? Do you know what to do if this happens? Do you, I mean, just real, pra- do you know how to bounce a checkbook? Do we even still bounce checkbooks? I guess computers do that. I don't clearly, but um, uh, those sorts of things. But all the way into stuff like, hey, um, you go to church now because you're with your family and this is what your family does, but, but now you're going to college or you're going to the military or going to school or, or wherever that is. And what does that look like now to start walking that out on your own? How do you look for a church? What do you look for in a church when you go to different places? Some of that kind of stuff. It is one of the coolest and one of the best of the whole milestone program. So if you um, have kids in that category, I strongly urge you to get involved. Stop by the connect desk on the way out or grab Pastor Jeremy and make sure you get involved in that. So uh, that's enough of that. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. If you guys would join me in honor of the word of the Lord, we're going to read Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start, just so we can get a little uh, head start, we're going to start in verse 10, though our study is going to be focused um, on verses 14 through 20. Philippians 4, verse 10 says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. 
Thank you so much, Lord, for your wisdom. And thank you so much, Lord, for your heart for us. Lord, I beg of your grace this morning, Lord. This is a difficult topic, a controversial topic, a touchy topic. It deals with need. It confronts idolatry. It flies in the face of abuses and misuses we've seen. And there's much confusion and frustration and fear around this one topic. And, and God, we pray that you would cut through all of that haze, bring your truth to bear in our lives, and that it would produce freedom and peace and joy in you, Jesus. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Before we start, quick disclaimer. If you are visiting us today, if you're not part of the Heritage family, whether, whether you've become a formal member and actually joined the church or a longtime attender, whatever, if you are not one of those and you're just kind of visiting, if you're just checking us out, especially if this is like your first week, it's quite an interesting week for you guys to have joined us. Um, we love having you here. I'm so glad that you're here. Anything we can do to help and serve you, we will. But um, my disclaimer is this, as much as we love you and we're glad you're here, this sermon is absolutely not for you. Now, I, I hope you'll listen. I, I hope especially you'll listen when we talk about the motivation for how Christians should, not how maybe you've seen Christians historically approach money or churches in particular, but, but the motivation for how we should approach the subject of money because that's what we're talking about today. I do hope you will listen, but this sermon is not for you. In no way is anything we're talking about encouraging anyone outside the family of God and in particular the family of Heritage Christian Fellowship to give anything because as you're going to see, our giving, Christian giving, should be in response to what God has given us. And if you have not experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus yet, we're getting the cart before the horse. And that's not how God designed it. So we're just glad you're here. And anything we can do to serve and bless and reach out to you, then we love you. We're really glad you're here. Maybe come next week. Maybe something will be slightly more applicable to you. Uh, but Heritage family, say amen. amen. This is for us. Everybody say it with me. This is for us. This is for us. There's a, a poem that I ran across that I thought was incredibly profound that dissects to the heart of some of the things we're going to talk about today in a way that was just really unique. And I'm, I'm going to read this to you. You know, sometimes poems or songs have a way, because of the artistic nature of the way that it's arranged, of, of penetrating our heart with a truth in a way that just some sort of like, here's what we want to say, that doesn't have the same punch. You know what I mean? And listen to this poem. It says this. It profoundly describes so much of the human existence in our culture today. It says this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature, sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, <laughs> the youth and the free spirit I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mine without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. That's a pretty profound poem. That has a way of grasping the life experience of a lot of people. Living our whole lives looking forward to something, wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. And then getting to the last part of our lives and realizing that that was not what it was all about. And then regretting all the time wasted, wishing we had some of it to do over again. That's an incredibly profound insight to what is much of the human existence, especially in our culture. What makes it more stunning, it was written by a 14-year-old. An incredible insight. Now, it'd be really easy for us to talk today about want, to read a poem like that, and man, I could guilt trip every one of us. Stop wanting stuff. It's not about stuff. It's not about wanting a full life. It's not about wanting limitations or freedoms or all. It's... But what if want isn't the thing? 
What if it's not a sin to want? What if we thought for a minute about maybe the sin is in wanting things from maybe the wrong place or wanting things for the wrong reasons? What, what if that's what trips us up? What if we're supposed to want, we just mess it up along the way? Well, this is what we're going to be talking about today as we approach everyone's favorite topic and mine, money. Money. Not a fun topic. Now, it's really interesting that this is what comes up. Now, we're not just, this is not, if you're visiting, you, we didn't just randomly, it's not my choice to preach on money today. Trust me. Um, we are studying the book of Philippians. We're going through it. We're studying every verse. In some cases, we've really taken our time studying every word even, right? And so here we are in this letter that Paul had written to a church that had been planted by him years and years previously. And, and here's the context that this comes up. Life's about to get really hard for the Philippian Christians, persecution's about to increase, difficulty's about to increase. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian in that town. And so Paul's writing to them and his whole purpose is, look, I love you. I want to encourage you. Keep following Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus. Make Jesus the focal point. And he's saying, I want you to experience the peace of God in spite of all the unpeaceful things that are going on around you. I want you to be rooted into something, joy and peace that has nothing to do with what's going on around you that's so strong, so powerful that it will endure and it will continue to create peace and joy in your own heart no matter how much war or antagonism or pain you might be experiencing from outside of the culture. And so as he's writing about these things, he's like, pursue the Lord, do all this. And then he comes to the end and he talks about money. Now, there's probably a specific context to some of this because here's Paul writing. And as you guys remember, two weeks ago we were here and we were talking about contentment. And Paul's text, as we just read, hey, I can be content in all things. I've learned how to be wealthy and poor, to have much and to have nothing. And man, I don't need any of that kind of stuff because I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. But here's the problem, as we just saw in reading through the text, the Corinthians had just sent money to Paul. So it's almost like getting a gift and then you're going, yeah, and I don't need none of that. That's not very grateful. It's not very Christian, right? So maybe you can picture Paul and he's writing, man, I have learned how to be poor. Money doesn't, I don't need money. I don't need wealth. I don't need any of that stuff to find joy. Oh, they sent me money. Oh, but I'm really thankful and grateful. So he, he goes into this idea and he starts talking about Christian giving, what this looks like. And so as we're going to look at this text, we're going to point out just a couple things about the nature of this specific act of giving. And we're going to talk a little bit about the motivation behind it and kind of the bigger picture regarding giving overall is what we're going to talk about here. And so the first thing that I want to point out is that Paul, when he's talking about their giving, he doesn't refer to it simply as giving. He refers to it as sharing. He says at the very beginning of verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. In verse 15, um, some of your translations say, no church shared with me. Other translations such as the ESV, which I teach out of, says no church entered into partnership. And the, the idea of partnership and sharing with regards to giving, it's very applicable. It does mean literally to enter into a partnership. And it's a term that we are way more familiar with, way more familiar with than maybe we realize. Because for example, if you buy stock in a company you now own what? A share of that company. And what you're doing, you're giving money to that company in hopes that they will take that and do better or do more of what it is that they do. So if you're investing in whatever company it might be, you're hoping that with those resources you have now shared with them, they will be able to turn a profit that down the road you might benefit from. And that's important to understand because of the perspective Paul teaches from. So there's a couple of things to note about this particular case because we don't want to extract any meaning from a text that's just random. We want to be able to notice what does this text say. And there's some things about the way they give that are important to notice. The first of, he says that their giving was outstanding. And that doesn't mean like outstanding. That means like it's, it stands apart from the giving that everyone else had done. He talks about the fact in, in uh, verse 15, he says, no church entered into partnership like you guys did. These guys have given gifts to him through Epaphrodite, uh, through Steve, <laughs> Epaphroditus, whatever that was, uh, through Epaphroditus, but also through, they had been giving to him regularly before that, as we'll see in a second. Um, and so they've been just supporting and taking care of Paul in a way that set them apart from everyone else. Their giving kind of isolated themselves, almost put a spotlight on them that could not be applied to other churches in the area. That's interesting. Also, we see it was a long-standing partnership. 
He makes the comment that like there was a time when they wanted to give and didn't have the resources, but then he goes on to say later that you gave again and again. So this wasn't just a one-time gift. This was continual support. This would be similar to, for example, our church. We have the mission in Carmen Sardon, Mexico that we support. We give monthly to support those orphans that are down there at the mission in Mexico. So that money goes monthly. It's not just a one-time gift. We are engaged in a long-time partnership with them, supporting them. Also, you could take that into, we, we have a sister church in Uganda, in Africa, in Barara, Uganda, and we have been supporting them for seven and a half years, I think now, pouring into them, putting kids through school, helping them build a new church building, just continually supporting them on a monthly basis. We have this long-standing relationship with them. But then he also, you, you notice something here about the giving that's here. The giving that's taking place in this case is not convivial, it's essential, and this is what that means. I had to look that word up too, don't worry. This is what convivial means. Convivial giving would be this. Let's say you live in a 2,000 square foot house. You have two and a half cars. You have two garage doors. You have a two car garage. You have three kids. You make $60,000 a year and you live in the suburbs. And you decide, man, you know what? Let's, we want to invite someone over and just really bless them. And you call your good buddy who lives around the corner in the same neighborhood. He makes $62,000 a year. He also has three and a half cars, two car garage, three kids, the whole thing. And you say, hey, come on over and you make him a really nice meal. You like pour into him and bless him and take care of him. You want to get a, you want to cook a really good steak for him. These are your friends. You want to entertain him. You want to do hospitality really well with him, right? That's a good thing, right? But that's not the kind of giving that's happening right here. It's not the kind of giving that even Jesus sets apart as specifically Christian giving. What they're doing is essential. In other words, they're, they're giving money to a guy who is in a position of dire need with no ability to return to them himself anything. I mean, he's in prison as they're doing this. They're sending money to a guy with no hope of immediate return. That's different. This is kind of what Jesus talks about. So in Luke 6, 32, Jesus says this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, don't go Hallmark Valentine's Day love on me. Think about this. This is what Jesus says. If you love, meaning not emotional love, but if you love, if you're reaching out, if you're caring for, if you're pouring into, if you're serving, if you're giving to, if you are loving those who are in return also loving you. Not emotional, but like caring for you, serving you. You're inviting them to dinner. Next week, they're inviting you to dinner. Like that kind of relationship, that's good, amen? Is that good? That's good. I would hope you have friends that do that. And honestly, in our day and age, in our culture in particular, a lot of our friends tend to be in that same sort of demographic. And I would hope that you're loving one another and serving one another and, and practicing hospitality with one another. But Jesus says, in that kind of love, that's good. It's nothing special though. It's not the kind of giving that other people would look at and go, that's different. You say, that's kind of to be expected. They're the same people. They're in the same culture. They have the same economic background. They have about the same income. They can serve them. The others can serve them. They can take turns going out to dinner, whatever it is. That's great. That's good. It's nothing special. That's not like reaching out to someone who can't possibly in any way do anything to return any favor to you. And so when you, for example, say, I'm going to, we had Save the Storks here last week, this, this outreach to moms and babies. When you say, okay, I'm going to take 30 bucks a month, I'm going to stop drinking foo-foo Starbucks drinks for a month, and I'm going to start every month, I'm going to give money to this organization that's going to in turn take this money and support this woman who's in trouble. She might not be a Christian, she might not deserve it, she might have done all sorts of terrible, heinous things to get her into the position where she's at, but I'm gonna do that anyway. I don't even know who she is. I want nothing in return. I'm just gonna give because I feel like that's, that's, that's a good and caring and godly thing for me to do. That's the kind of living that we see here. And the idea of it is this. Christian giving is designed, as you read how Jesus describes it and all these things, there's an element of Christian giving that should make when other people, when they see us do it, it should make them scratch their heads a little bit. It should make him go, that's not normal. Now, Jesus really emphasized this in a way that in our culture today, we, it sort of gets lost. It's the story of the, the Good Samaritan. Almost anybody knows that story. Even if you're not a believer, you know what the phrase Good Samaritan means. It's just, it's just now common slang, meaning you're someone who does good for someone. 
But we sort of mess up our ability to really feel the impact of that story when we call it the Good Samaritan because the idea of the Samaritan in the story was supposed to be the punchline, like the surprise. We give it away at the beginning. And you know how the story is. It's a guy, a Jewish guy. He's talking to Jews at the time. So he's saying, someone just like you, average, ordinary guy, he's traveling. He gets robbed. He gets beaten up. He's left on the side of the road for dead. And he says, then who comes along? And he, he kind of does this, if you will, convivial giving examples. He talks about, oh, it's a Jewish person like you who comes along. It's a priest that comes along. Of course, a priest is going to help him, right? I mean, he's clergy. He kind of has to, right? But in each case, the person just walks on or crosses the street, ignores them, and goes on about their way. And then Jesus says, and then comes a Samaritan. Now, when we say that in Sunday school now, we go, well, of course it's a Samaritan. We've already been told this is the parable of the good Samaritan, so we know he's coming. But in that day and age, it would have been, and then comes a Samaritan, and everybody would have went, what? So to help us understand a little better, it would be like, not 9-11, but it's 9-12. And Jesus is speaking to you and says, and then came an Iranian. And then came an Iraqi. And then came an Arab. And you're in a place where you're like, wait a minute, man, we got tension there. I don't even know if I like any of those people. And could any of them be doing good? We're angry, we're hurt, there's all this going on, there's war, all these things that complicate it. And then we see this giving and the guy doesn't just like throw money on him as he walks away. It says that he took care of him. He saw this person in need and he didn't just recognize the need, didn't just want to invest in the need, he took responsibility of it onto himself and he invested himself into the need and served them. When Jesus taught that story, it was to make all of his listeners at that time go, that's different than what I see on a daily basis. That's not normal giving. That's weird. And it should make them kind of scratch their heads just a little bit. Well, this is the idea. Specifically, Christian giving is giving to someone in such a way that you're getting nothing in return and maybe an outsider watching would scratch their heads a little. When Jesus was training his disciples, he emphasized this. He did it in many different places. But in one case, he's got his disciples around. It's kind of his school discipleship, his mentors, and he's training them to do ministry. And he's about to send them out to go do what he's been doing. And he says this in Matthew 10, verse 8. Hey, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, so give without pay. This is part of his training For his disciples, hey, you have been given much, so go give with expecting nothing back in return. And that is really what is at the core of Christian giving. The motivation of what we do is that we have been given too. And in response to that, we give, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about something else that we can see in this text. Paul has a really unique and specific perspective on giving as he's talking to them. Paul's perspective as he approaches the subject, encouraging, thanking, and building them up for their giving is a very unique and important perspective. Now, our church is about eight and a half years old now. And we've talked about a lot of things over the last eight and a half years. One of the most common compliments I'll actually get at our church is they'll say things like um, complimenting the teaching. We have a lot of really good teachers here. We're really blessed in that. And then one of the things that they would say is they'll say, Pastor Jeff just tells it like it is. Well, I appreciate that, but there's a problem with that compliment. That compliment implies a sense of bravery that isn't actually there. I appreciate it. I love that you would, oh man, they think I'm brave. Dummies, they don't get it. But um, that's not it. You're not dummies. I don't mean that. That was bad. It's not that I'm brave or that any teacher here is brave. It's that the Bible is bold. And when we approach the scriptures, the way we believe here at Heritage that we're to approach the scriptures doesn't give us the ability to avoid things. Because I'd rather not teach about giving, but we're in Philippians and we're studying all of Philippians and now it's about giving. And so this is what we got to talk about. So it's not that Jeff's brave, the Bible is bold and it faces these things. But I think back and I'm like, man, in eight and a half years, we've talked about all sorts of things. We've talked about sex. I mean, like, that might have been a PG-13 service at least. I don't know what that was, but that was back in Corinthians. We dealt with that pretty head on. We've talked about liberties. We've talked about Christians and alcohol. We've talked about pornography. We've talked about gender roles. We've talked about race and racial reconciliation. We've talked about all sorts of things that are like controversial topics that are uncomfortable, uncomfortable to teach and uncomfortable to hear. Amen? We've done that, right? Even recently, we've talked about things that are really hard. 
Like going through Philippians, we've talked about anxiety and abuse. And I've been really open about some of the things that I've been through in my life and still go through in my life. And those things are hard to talk about. Those things are uncomfortable to talk about. Maybe they were uncomfortable for some of you to hear. But let me assure you, nothing that I could or ever preach about makes me more uncomfortable to talk about than the issue of money and giving. Nothing will make my knees shakier coming up the steps. I'd rather talk about any of those other things than money. And as I thought about it, in eight and a half years, I was like, I don't think we've ever even really talked about it in eight and a half years. But here's the truth. I have not led well in that area. That's a failure of leadership on my part to talk about. Now, there's reasons that we shy away from wanting to talk about that. We've seen it done so poorly in the past. We've seen church abuses. We've seen people that are just after money. And so sometimes we want to avoid all that. But when the scriptures say, for example, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, I mean, we, we should at least pause and really think about this a little more often when God is saying, hey, this is one of the number one competitors against Jesus for your affections, for your heart. We should probably stop and think about it for a little while. But I can just tell you, this is honest truth. As a preacher, as a pastor, and I've talked to many, many, many other guys who are in this same boat, it's kind of known among us in a certain way. There, there can be a certain amount of fear about talking with this because of the abuses of the past. And, and me, like myself, I've told you guys this before, at, at heart, at my nature, if you will, um, I tend to be more people-pleasing in my, my nature, my upbringing, kind of my whole history. And so there can be that, like, I don't want to talk about money because then they're going to think that I'm after their money. I don't want to talk about this because then visitors are going to hear and they're going to think we're just like the people that we've seen in the past that have horribly misused and all these things. And there can be this animosity and, and people get upset when you talk about money. So you don't want to talk about that because I want people to like me. And so we can want to shy away from some of those things. But here's what I realize as I'm looking at this text this week and as I'm studying this. Paul's able to approach subjects like money. He's able to talk with them pretty freely and almost what seems like pretty casual, normal conversation because his perspective's different. So if, if I'm coming before you in fear because of all those things that I just listed out to you, when I approach money, how am I gonna end up handling that? Okay, I gotta get up here and I've gotta prove to them that our church is different. Our church is good enough to give to. Our church is more responsible with money. Our hearts, my heart is more pure than the guy they see on TV. All these kind of things. And so what you end up doing is you're promoting a platform. You're promoting an organization. And you're trying to prove your worth. But that's not what Paul does at all. Paul is encouraging their giving, having nothing to do with himself, his mission, or his platform. His whole perspective is, I want you to give. I am thankful that you gave. Why? Because it's good for you to give. It's good for you. In fact, there's credit that comes to your account because you give. This is what he says. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And these are accounting terms. When you give to me, your account's going to go up and I want that for you. I want you guys to do well. I want you to flourish. I want to see your account balance rise. And that's his perspective and his focus on this. And so that's why this morning, with as much boldness as I can master, and let's just trust the word for the rest of it, Heritage family, if you're part of the Heritage family, whether you're a formal member, you just, you've just been tracking with us for a while. If you're a Heritage family, say amen. I'm impressed. I thought some of you would take that opportunity to bail out knowing that it was a money teacher. Well done. Okay, those of you, listen, listen. You need to give. You need to be generous. Not because heritage is worth it. Not because Jeff or heritage needs it. But because God wants it for you. Now, there's all sorts of reasons. I want to talk about a couple of them in general, but I want to lead back around to this idea. You, heritage family member, need to give for your sake, for your sake, not for the sake of the church. Now, I want to explain a few things to you, and I want to walk through some of this so that we can understand not just the importance and even the necessity from a obedience to God level with regards to giving, but for your own sake. And so first I want to talk about this, like you need to, you do need to, you need to give because of who God is. Like you need to give because of who God is. And let me put it to you this way. Um, God is really generous. Amen? God is really, really generous. In Exodus 34, Moses says to God, show me your glory. 
In other words, show me who you are, God. Show me your essence. Show me what makes you, you. God, reveal yourself to me. And God does it in this famous passage. He reveals himself. He describes, he declares himself to Moses. And the first thing he says, he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The first thing. He could have said all sorts of things. I am the Lord, I am powerful. I am the Lord, I know everything. I am the Lord, I created you. He could have said all sorts of things, but he says, the Lord, the Lord your God, gracious, merciful. That's the first thing he says he wants to be known by. The first thing he tells Moses about himself. Now, any good dad wants his kid to grow up kind of looking like him, doesn't he? I know that gets complicated for us because we have the things about us we want to make sure our kids don't look like, right? But the good things, God's without sin. God's perfect. And his goal, once you're saved, the idea of sanctification, Sam did the best sanctification teaching I'd ever heard a long time ago. He really did. Go back and listen on the website. But once you're saved, God's whole plan is to make you more and more like him. So you need to give because of who God is. But it, it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. Here, here's the thing. Let's consider a couple of things for a minute. There's some things that God can't do or won't do. There's some things God can't do. Now, I don't mean, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? That's just dumb. So we're not, I don't, that's not what I mean. But I mean, there are some things God cannot do because to do them would violate who he is. It would violate his character. It would violate what he says he's going to do. And so he can't do those things. So, and, and they're good. So for example, God cannot be surprised. You ever thought about that? God can never, ever, 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 ever be surprised. That's good. That means not once have you ever messed up and God's watching from heaven and went, what? <laughs> not once, not once have you ever sinned and God's going, oh no. I love how Matt Chandler puts it. He's like, he has never huddled up Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, like we sealed you in him. Where were you? Like what happened here, guys? It's never happened. And the reason that's encouraging is this. That sin that you're gonna commit tomorrow to, or today or, or now, stupid preacher keeps going. <laughs> that, that sin? Like, listen, you didn't surprise him. You didn't disappoint him. That's why he came. And when Jesus went to the cross, oh, those thousand years ago, he came for that sin. He is not surprised. He looks at us. The scriptures say what? As a father who pities his child. And he loves us. He's not surprised. And he's powerful. So he's not surprised and freaked out by the things that go. He is in control and he loves us. That's good. Aren't you glad he can't be surprised? You know what else he can't do? He can never change. He can never change change. And I don't mean in the way some of you wives are like, he'll never change about your husband. That's not what I mean. But I mean, God is who he is and he's perfect and he'll never change. Here's why that's good news. That means God also can't change his mind about you. Isn't that good? Because if God could change his mind about Jeff Hensley, he would have a long time ago. He would have said, dude, it's been 30 years now. I got to move on to some others. But God can't do that. He will finish what he started. Amen? God can't overlook sin. That's a scary one at first. You mean I don't get away with anything? No, God, God is just and holy. So he can't just ignore sin. That would be unjust. But he's also loving, gracious, and merciful as we just saw, right? And so that's why the cross is so important. That's where the intersection of God's love and mercy and God's justice come. And God didn't ignore sin but Jesus took the punishment of our sin for us. So we see demonstrated justice and love. That's why the scriptures say mercy and truth uphold the throne. But here's what I want you to consider today. God cannot be second. God cannot be second. Now look, I know you can live in such a way that puts God second on your priority list, but let me assure you that does not make God second. Because God is first. However you live, you live. But God is always first. I knew a guy who, this dude was so Republican, conservative, Fox News, red. Like, I mean, like red. Even his skin was red. Like this guy was red, right? And when Obama got elected president, he was really red. 
And he would say, well, that's not my president. I'd say, well, kind of is. <laughs> nope, that's not my president. I'm like, okay, well, if you want to stop paying taxes and supporting that president, then you can roll the dice and see how that plays out. But however you choose to live, if you choose to support, if you choose to say that's my president, or if you choose to say that's not my president, it doesn't change the fact that the president of the United States is still Obama. Recognize what you want. He's still president. And this is the way it is with God. We just sang it in this song. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Your options are these. Bow or bow. (laughs) Those are the only options. Now your heart can be really different. You can bow willingly and in love and response and worship saying, that's my king. Or you can bow saying, "Uh, uh uh-oh. But you'll bow. God is first. God cannot be second. Theologically, it's called the principle of preeminence. And you see it throughout scripture. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what? God. Before there was ever anything that we know that ever exists, there was God. He was first. And then you go to the New Testament, you see in the book of John, it says basically the same exact thing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, or the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, God, he's first. But it's so much more than that. We're about to go into the book of Colossians. And the whole theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. Preeminence means what? First. And I want you to listen to what we're going to study. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this about Jesus. He is, I'm going to warn you guys, I'm totally going to expect an amen at the end of this. Okay, so just letting you know. So here's how it goes. Verse 15, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Over all the authorities or powers you know, he's first. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means? First, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, get ready, here comes the amen, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, we're really close, making peace by the blood of the cross, period. Amen. Amen. Listen, he's first. Whether you choose to recognize that or not, he's first. What's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. It's not him saying, hey, please put me first. He's, he's first. And pretending he's not, or living as if he's not, or using our resources and our money as if he's not, doesn't change the fact that he's first. And keep in mind, Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And so Jesus has given us this perfect little litmus test to be able to analyze our heart and recognize, is he first in our life? I assure you he is. But are you living in that way? But, but here's the thing. You don't just need to give to God because of who he is, but, but we give because of what he's done. Because here's the beautiful thing. God is first. Right, church? He's what? But listen, he's not, it's not just that he's first. But listen, he moved first. He's not just first. He moved first. First, Romans 5, 8 says what? But God has shown his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not wait for Jeff to polish himself up just enough to make it kind of worth it. He didn't wait for Jeff to build his portfolio enough to say, you know, that's probably a company worth investing in. We should give that a shot. No, when Jeff was bankrupt with no hope, heading the wrong direction with no CEO, a train wreck for sure, he said, I'll move first and save him. That's what God did. He is first. He is preeminent. He holds, think about that. He holds the whole world together. If he decided, eh, I'm out, we're gone. And that he would move towards us, towards me? That's unbelievable. What does 1 John 4, 19 say? We love because he first loved us. He is first but he moved first. He's not first and then saying, now give, now earn, 
Now serve. He's first and said, now I'll give. I'll serve. I'll pour out. I said, amen. Somebody got it. Good. But now let me throw something else at you. And this is Paul's, where Paul's perspective kicks in. Paul would agree. We give because God's first. Amen? I think Paul would agree with that. Paul would agree. We should give to God because God moves first. Wouldn't you agree? Of course he would. But Paul also says, you, you should give because it's in your best interests. It's, it's good for you to give. Look at verse 17 again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then verse four, or chapter four and verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So why is it important to give? So the principle that we're talking about here today, and we'll see it here in a different text in just a moment, is called the principle, it's, it's first fruits giving. Israel was an agrarian society, so a lot of the stuff we see is based on that sort of model. So first fruits, you could call it first earning, first whatever. First fruits giving means we give to God first, and then we manage whatever it is that we're doing from that point. And, and that's real difficult. That's the only kind of giving to God that actually requires faith. Because let's be honest, writing the check to God first while the bills are sitting there, that, that takes faith sometimes, doesn't it? Amen? Let's just be honest. Like, that's hard. And, and it's really easy for us to go, but you know, if, if, I don't, if I don't write the check to God, if I don't give to the Lord, no one's going to come knocking on my door. But if I don't give to the power company, they will. And so we can, we can kind of get our priorities upside down. But the principle given to us in scripture is that we give to the Lord first because he is first, because he moved first. First fruits giving. And I want you to think of it this way. The idea is, and Paul talks about this as, as a share, as an investment, that you're investing in something. And an investment, if you invested in a company, if you got a share in a company, you're not buying that share in that company just for the gener generosity of your own heart, right? Anyone feel like just giving money to Apple just because you want to be nice? Of course not, right? They're fine. <laughs> they don't need it. We invest in Apple because we're hoping that they will continue to do or do better what they do and that one day down the road, we will reap a reward or an investment return from that, correct? Well, Paul's saying this is how Christian giving should be too. And there's nothing wrong with it. He's teaching us about this. Think about what Jesus said. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, these are Jesus' words, not some dude on TBN. And he says, as you give, it's going to be given back to you. Does that make anyone feel, I mean, I know they're Jesus' words, but if we were honest, does that make anyone feel a little bit uncomfortable? Like, ooh, you can go some bad ways with that, right? And then he, Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, you winos, don't go too far with that. Let's just think about this for just a minute. This is what he says. Hey, hey, honor the Lord first. Give to the Lord first. And then what's gonna happen? Your barn will be full. Your vat will be bursting with wine. In other words, you're going to be blessed. You are going to reap an overwhelming, that's the, the way the wording is here, like this overwhelming reward is gonna come to you. Now that sounds good, right? Right? But here's the problem. Some people have taken those texts. We call them prosperity theologians. Um, I call them jerks. But um, have taken those texts. And this is what they do. They go, you know why you're poor? You know why you don't have enough money? You know why you don't have the Mercedes in your driveway? You know why you don't have all that stuff? Because you're not living by faith. And what you need to do is you need to give first. And you just give, and as much as you give, that'll show how much faith you got. And in return, God's going to give you everything you want. And it is a lie. And here's why it's a lie. When you do that, you're not after God, you're after stuff. And the principle that's at play in prosperity theology is that we move first. If I give, now God's in my debt, and he has to give back to me. But God doesn't do second. God does not go into debt to any man, the scriptures say. But people have taught this. I mean, in Uganda, where we go and serve, there are prosperity theologians that have got on their private planes 
and flown from here to Uganda to draw people, hundreds of thousands of people, to teach these people who have nothing, that they're poor because they don't give enough and they want them to give to them. And I'm telling you guys, like, I've been, I'll be there in January or February this coming year. I've been there, and they're so honored that we would come. It's kind of that head-scratching giving that I'm talking about. They're like, these people flew all the way here. They got on that dumpy bus. They did the six-hour drive all the way to the middle of nowhere in Uganda, and they will literally take a week's worth of salary to buy a soda to hand you as you sit on their dirt floor in their house because that's the kind of honor it is to them to even have you there. And these people will come from America on their private planes and say, you know what you need to do? You need to give to me. America, with all our wealth, with all our resources, and with our calling as Christians to go serve those in those positions, they will spin the whole thing around and say, if you want wealth, you need to give to me. And as a result, some of the most materialistic people I've ever met are Ugandans. Because they look at these white men, these white pastors with all this money who have come over there and they're like, they, they view skin color as God's favor, having no idea what a train wreck we are, right? But they do. There's a huge inferiority complex, and they'll see skin color, they'll see money, they'll see all this, and they'll go, well, God's favor is really on them. And it's, it's a train wreck. It's a disaster. And it's not the gospel. Because the gospel is God who had all wealth and all power and all influence and all ability, set all of that aside, didn't see any of that. This is Philippians. Didn't see any of that as worthy of being clung to. He set it aside to humble himself for our sake. So when we go to Uganda, we want to humble ourselves. We want to sit on their floor. We want to eat meals with them. We want to serve them. And we want to give to them. Not to make us feel good or not to make us look good, but because this is the gospel. And God doesn't do second. And that's what the prosperity theology does. But here's the reality, though. That, as dangerous as that theology is, and as terrible as that theology is, and as much crime and wickedness and all that that, that has done, does not negate the truth of the scripture that says there are blessings that come with giving to God. And so for us to ignore that and not teach one another those things is to withhold blessing from one another. And I don't know about you, but anybody in here feel they don't need God's blessing? No hands. Cool. So all of us need God's blessing, do we not? And it's terrible what's been done, but we ought not throw baby out with bathwater because these are good things. So think of it. Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 6. He says this. Hey, seek what? First, the kingdom of God. Why? God's first. God moved first. Does God do second? No. So he says, I'm losing momentum with some of you guys. But um, so he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And then what does he say? And all these things will be added to you. Okay, what are these things? When you go earlier in the text, what is he saying? Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Your heavenly father knows you need those things. He will take care of you, but you seek first the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't say, don't want those things, but he says, don't live for those things. Don't make that what you're seeking first. You need to seek the kingdom of God. Is it a bad thing to have a house? It's not a rhetorical, or it's not a trick question. <laughs> Is it a bad thing to want a house? No, not at all. Is it a bad thing to want a car? Or is it a bad thing to want meals or clothing or any of those things? Absolutely not, not at all. But we ought not live for and invest continually in those things because they cannot produce for us what we're really looking for, which is the whole theme of Philippians, peace, joy, and salvation. They can make you feel good for a little while, right? Isn't it weird how a new thing makes you feel good for a little while? But it doesn't last. God never changes. And so this is what he's calling us to do. He wants us to invest in these things. And, and we've got to be careful with some of that stuff. And I, I've seen, like, it's, it's good to desire, but you have to be careful with it. It's, it's tricky. Like, I didn't grow up in a prosperity theology church. I grew up in a good old Southern Baptist church. And I can remember some of the early teachings that I heard about giving. And, and one of the examples, there was some guy, he's like CEO for this big company. It was a well-known company. I don't remember what it was. But um, he gets saved and he decides, he reads about tithing. And he says, I'm going to start giving my tithe. I'm going to give 10% of my money to, uh, um, to the Lord. And this is what I'm going to do. 
And so that's what he did. And what do you know? His profits went up, guess how much? You know it, 10%. So he's like, whoa, I followed the Lord. He blessed me in return. My profits went up 10%. Okay, well, I wanna do that again. And so what did he turn around and do? Now he's gonna go give 20%. And guess what happened? (gasps) 20% profits went up. And so this goes on, the story goes on and on to the point where he was given some 80% or whatever it was of his company's money, was giving it away into the kingdom of God and he had more money than he knew what to do with. Now, I'd like that, right? I mean, who among us wouldn't go, man, I could give away that much money and serve the kingdom that much and still have more money. Yes, please. (laughs) Right. But we have to be careful where our heart is aligned. And so to, to look at Christian giving as, okay, so if I give 20%, that means I'll give 20% back. You've gotten things reversed. And now you're looking at God as some sort of vending machine. If I put this in, I'll get this out. And you, you've made God like some genie. They pay, he'll respond. And God doesn't do second. God does first. But he's good. He's a good father. And he says, I want you to trust me. You can trust me. Seek me first. You can trust me. I'll take care of those other things. You know, my kids, um, they have never once. Now this is, praise God for this. And this may not be everyone's story. But my kids, for example, Do you realize that not once ever in their life have they ever come to me and said, hey, dad, um, I'm a little worried. Um, Are are we going to make the mortgages this month? It's never happened. Not once in my oldest daughter's 12 years has she come to me and said, dad, I'm a little nervous. Do you you think we're going to be able to have dinner tonight at all? Will there be food? Not once. You know why? Because they trust that their parents love them and will care for them and that the provision is there. They think we have this endless provision, right? We don't, but God does. And so pushback oftentimes against Christian giving is actually a trust issue in a lot of ways, not trusting that God has your best interests at heart and that he promises to come through. And as verse 19 of Philippians 4 says, my God will supply every need, not want, but every, that's the one we hate as a kid, right? But it's true. He will supply every need of yours. But trust me, listen, he's good and he's generous. And in this one area, he dares you to try him on it. He dares you. Some of you have known this. This is kind of the go-to giving passage. Those of you that have been through teachings on this before, you've probably been waiting. When's Malachi coming in? Right now. Malachi comes in. In Malachi chapter three, listen to what God says as he writes to Israel. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And now look at this. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now listen, at this point, a lot of people who are uh, theologians, armchair theologians, whatever you want to call it, this is where, and maybe some of you are already there, you start some of the pushback. You wait, 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 wait. That whole tithing 10% thing, that's Old Testament law. That's Old Testament custom. Jesus came to abolish law. This whole 10% stuff, get it out of here. That's not even true, right? Are we really supposed to tithe 10%? I, I don't know. Here's what I know. Most people that ask that question aren't trying to give more. Most people that ask that question want to keep more. So check your heart on those. But here's the idea. Joby Martin says, is a pastor friend of ours. He's gonna be doing man camp up pretty soon, actually. He's a phenomenal pastor from Florida. And he said this. He said, hey, when Jesus went to the cross, God gave his first, God gave his best, and he did not tithe his blood. He poured it all out. And our giving is not about a percentage. Our giving is in response to that. So whatever God is moving your heart to do in honest response to that, that's what you give. But you give. It's worship, not a program. It's worship, not an investment program that I want to gain from. It is in response to the fact that Jesus didn't say 10% of my blood. He poured it all out for us. And so we're simply returning back to him. And here's the beauty of it is it's all his anyway. Like, right? You know how like when it's Father's Day and the kid comes up to you, dad, can I have 20 bucks? Father's Day weekend. Why? So you can buy like terrible cologne or something and give it to me and he'll sit in my cabinet forever. Yep. All right. 20 bucks. There you go. Then Father's Day comes. Here you go, dad. That's what we do. God owns everything. 
Everything we have is a gift from God. And you go, no, it's not. I worked hard to earn what I have. No, you didn't. You have what you have, though you may have worked hard, but you have what you have because God has been so generous to you. If you're just an amazing, brilliant businessman, you didn't type that up in a request memo in the womb and come out like that. God bless you with that. The the athletes you're going to watch on TV today, like they didn't in the womb go, I'd like to be 6'5 really fast and be able to catch every pass that comes my way. That is a gift. And listen, the fact that you live in this country is an unbelievable gift. And so everything we have is a gift from God. That's why the scriptures say every good and perfect gift comes from our father of light. God is good. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. And so we are much like that little kid who gets everything from God, turns around, gives 10% back and says, then, then we feel generous. God gives first. It's all his anyway. This is returning of worship back to him. And so he's talking about this, this idea of these tithes. And, and let, me, let me say one more thing about this, by the way. Um, percentages or whatever, listen, everybody tithes. And you're like, um, I don't, I know. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't know. I haven't been watching. I, I really don't. I have no idea. Sorry. Um, now no one trusts me. But, um, but no, everyone tithes. Every single one of you in this room tithes. You just, maybe you tithe to a different God. In fact, everyone gives to their God sacrificially. And if you don't believe me, look at the debt ratios in our country. Like we will hurt ourselves to give to that which feeds our ultimate God, usually which is us. So I'll go into insane debt and pay way much more money and put myself in a really difficult situation down the road because I want to feed this thing now. So everyone tithes, everyone gives. They just give to different gods. So this tithing concept is not irrelevant. It's very much relevant. And God's saying, hey, you're, you're, you're robbing me. And that sounds like God in his power trip, doesn't it? You're robbing me, it's mine. But then look what he says. You are cursed with a curse. Oh, you see, Jeff, I told you. No, no, look, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. you. You are investing and seeking hope in things that are letting you down. And this was Israel's story. They're in captivity They've been through great turmoil because they turned away from God who had said, I will bless you. And they decided to go do things on their own and they have cursed themselves because they have rejected the blessings of God and now they're paying the price for it. And But look what he says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He's daring you. He's saying, look, I am a good dad. I know your needs. I know about rent. I know about mortgages. I know about all those kinds of things. I know about that stuff. But I'm just saying, seek first the kingdom of God. I'm saying, hey, put me to the test and see. Now, don't go too far with that. Therefore, I'm going to give and I should expect a check any day. No, but he's going to bless you. He's going to bless you. And look, there's, there's people who can be in the church who are in such a place financially. They're like, you don't understand, Jeff. I'm a mess right now. I don't, there's no way I could possibly give. There's no way I could possibly do those things. You can serve, you can give, you can give somehow, some way. You can put God to the test and see if he doesn't bless you. But I know this, and it, it's even scary to say for people that are in difficult situations, but it, it says, my God will supply every need. And the Psalms say that he's never seen the righteous begging bread. God is a good dad. And if you're like, well, but I don't know, man, I'm struggling. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, Jesus once said, hey, no one's given to the kingdom of God that they haven't been returned 100 fold. I know this much. I know this church gives a whole lot of money to help people in this very room through their needs throughout the year all the time. So your giving has not left you with zero resources. You're part of the church so that the church can come around and love and take care of you. So if you're in that place of need right now, that's why you're here. That's why we're here that we might give and serve and come alongside you. But out of those fears, we should never reject the understanding and the reality that God calls us to give. 
Heritage family, say amen if you're heritage family. You need to give. You need to. You need God's blessing in your life. You want to be obedient and God's first and God move first. But let me tell you one last thing and we're done. Giving is a, a tremendous witness and discipleship opportunity. In Exodus chapter 13, by the way, we have more room in our 830 service and I would have to be done by now. Just letting you know. So if you wanted to come to the early service, I've got a time limit. This, this last service, I can go all day. So just letting you guys know, little plug there. But in Exodus chapter 13, God is instituting this idea of giving, first fruits giving. He even talks to the people of Israel. It's the institution of Passover. And he, he uses the phrase in Exodus 13, the first to open the womb. So the first cattle, the first lamb, the, the firstborn is going to be consecrated and given to me. It's going to be sacrificed. And there's something interesting that happens as you read through that. Then it says, so when your son asks, what do you mean? Well, think about it. They're an agrarian society. They've got cattle. That's kind of their wealth. They've got sheep. This is what they eat. This is what they live off of. And so here's this son. He's growing up in dad's household and he's looking at the books one day. He's like, dad, I don't get it. I mean, we're doing okay, but, but you're taking the first of every one of these and you're killing them. In fact, you're not just taking the first, you're taking the best of every one of these and killing them. And I'm just saying, man, from a financial standpoint, this doesn't make any sense. And the dad is to respond and say, son, here's the thing. We didn't always have this cattle. We didn't always have this lamb. We didn't always live on this land. Once we were slaves, but God was merciful to us. So how does this play out with us? And I was convicted reading this. And I was like, you know what? I need, to, I need to let my kids see. It's so easy to just pay online or write the check or whatever. But I need to let my kids see us give. I need to let our kids see how much we give. I need to let our kids see the way that we try to navigate our budget. And my budget's a mess. But still, we need to see how they navigate that in, in hopes that our kids one day are going to look at that and go, Dad, why don't we do that? I mean, we could go on vacation next year someplace really nice, like fly somewhere. Like we could get a new car. We could do this. We could do this. Why do we do this? Well, Hannah, here's the thing. I think my, I think my daughter, especially Allie, is still in that age where I'm sort of like daddy the hero. They don't yet understand all the flaws that you start seeing later in life, right? But the opportunity to say to them, you know what, sweetheart? Here's the thing. Um, daddy is not the guy he used to be. He's got a lot of flaws now, don't get me wrong, but like, honey, I have done some terrible things in my life. I have sinned greatly against God. I have done some abominable things. I've done irresponsible things. I've done sinful, terrible things so many times in my life, but you know what? God has been merciful to me and he has poured all of his blood out for me. And so we do this. It's the meager way of thanks that we have to say, God, you have been so good to me. You are first, you are king, you are the rock, you are my redeemer, and you moved first when I didn't deserve it. And so this is, you've given me all this anyway. And so Lord, this is for you. My guess is when you have those kind of conversations with your kid, you know what you might hear? I'm glad you're my dad. I'm glad he's my dad. I'm glad he didn't hold back any goodness from me. I'm glad he has poured his goodness into me. And church, Heritage Family, if we're not giving, we need to give. We are stunting our own growth. We are cheating ourselves from blessing. And we are preventing our own worship to God in a significant way. So I want to encourage you to take these things and go chew on this stuff. Go talk with your wife. Talk with your family if you're not giving. Not because Heritage needs more money to do more programs. Because you need to give. And because God is first. And moved first. Amen? I love you guys. Will you stand please? God, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for their generosity, Lord. I thank you for their heart. You know, church, I forgot to tell you, actually, prayer continually. I can interrupt it real quick. Um, I got a message from Jeff Gilbert, who was here last week. You guys know? Save the Storks. And, and he got the final tallies on everything from the pledges that were given and all that kind of stuff. And, and he called me. I say this nervously because he talked about this way too much last week, so I'm sorry. But he goes, you know, Jeff, we got together for a beverage and a taco. And he goes, but you know what the Lord did from that? From that one conversation, the Lord began to move and people began to move. 
And so far, we've raised $363,000 in 13 months to serve mothers and to save babies. And, and so I, it was important for me to share because you are a generous, generous, generous church. And so in no way was this to beat you guys up. Uh, but but maybe, the God would, maybe God would have us do more. But Lord, these are generous people. And I'm so thankful for them. I'm so thankful for the things that you have done through this church. But God, you are so infinitely good and so infinitely giving. And God, we just thank you so much for your example to us. And I just pray, God, God, you would give us the opportunity in this week, Lord, to do some heart analysis, to see where our money does go. And does our money show where our hearts are aligned? And Lord, if we're investing primarily in things that aren't part of the kingdom of God and expecting return on them, God, will you grant us repentance and grant us faith? And then, Lord, may we want the blessings you offer. You wouldn't tell us about them if we shouldn't want them. So I pray, God, we would be pursuing those blessings, not the cheap thrills or the temporary thrills that the world can give. I pray against guilt or shame or any of those things anyone is experiencing. Lord, I join with Paul in this text. Lord, our whole purpose in this and your purpose in this, you're calling us to joy and freedom. So may you set your people free this week. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Remember Wednesday night, 6.30, worship and dessert. God bless.